Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're Mom listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to Mumbrella Cast. I'm Vivian Kelly. Joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is our senior media reporter, Zoe Samios. Hello. Deputy editor, Josie Tutty. Hello. And senior agencies reporter, Abigail Dawson. Hi. Plus, coming up later, we'll be chatting to Junkie Media's Tim Duggan about publishing's love-hate relationship with Facebook. Publishers need to use Facebook as much as Facebook is using publishers. Staying relevant in a challenging publishing market. We live and die by the content that we create, and if we're not good at that, then we're not going to have a business. And why outdoor and youth publishing works together. Someone's walking past a, um, a screen, you've got half a second to get their attention. But first, the week's topics. 11 and 1 to become peach and boss. Changes at the top at WPP. Jeffrey Rush court hearing continues. And MCN rebrands. So this week it emerged that it's very likely 10's multi-channels 1 and 11 will be rebranded to 10 Boss and 10 Peach. Now we've all been wondering for quite some time what 10's going to do next, particularly under the ownership of CBS and as it looks to its breakup with sales house MCN, which we'll talk about later so, Zoe, how did you find out that this might be about to happen when their upfronts aren't actually for another week and a half? Well, it's the wonderful wonderful world of trademarking that tends to f- help with these sorts of things. But first and foremost, I was reading the Herald Sun and there was an article that had gone up in, in sort of a column-like way alluding to the fact that Peach and Boss would be the new channels. And I thought, oh, that's a bit weird. But then, as I've done with a number of other things when I know that something's coming to market, you type it in on the internet and sure enough, you can easily find under Network 10's list of trademarked uh, entities uh, these two ones, 10 Boss, which has been approved, and 10 Peach, which is being uh, – it's a waiting approval, I think, is the official thing that they're saying at the moment. And so that's by IP Australia. Yes. Uh, so as we're recording this now, the 10 upfronts are less than a week away. Is that when we're anticipating they'll reveal the rebrands? That's exactly right. Although I I have a feeling that they don't actually have that much to announce now. Ten spent a lot of the last few weeks announcing a number of, you know, summer lineup game uh, game shows, I think they all were. Is it Sunday Night Takeaway, which is that UK show that's coming here, Game of Games just launched. So there was a number of other things that they've already announced. And I feel like this was the thing that they were waiting to go wow to everyone with. But unfortunately, now that thanks to one person at Herald Sun, the entire media industry has written that and has already made a judgment on that decision, which for the record doesn't seem to be quite positive. Well, yeah, look, I've been speaking to a number of media agency CEOs in Sydney and Melbourne over the past few weeks and their main concern from what I can gather, which is a a concern that I would echo and, look, I really hope I'm proven wrong, is that at the moment from what people can work out and the scuttlebutt that people are hearing – it seems like the channels are going to be quite stereotypically gendered, 10 boss targeting males and 10 peach targeting females, which stirs up all sorts of, you know, men are boss, women are fragile fruit connotations. Mm. There's also fears that 10 boss will be sort of, you can already imagine it, the blue like 11 is and then 10 peach all, all pretty and pink. Now, we don't know this for sure. I 
can't wait for Wednesday and 10 can blow me out of the water and prove me wrong and I'll come on this podcast and correct myself. But that's the fear in the market at the moment. Look, it definitely is. And I know that when one was originally launched, which is supposed to become 10 boss, it was targeted at men, but 11 was supposed to be just sort of this humorous, fun, witty. It wasn't targeted at women. I think the risks they run with these, as you said, names, Peach and Boss, definitely you have connotations immediately associated to those titles. And when you put – even if Boss on itself would be fine, but when you're putting it up next to something like Peach, you're looking at, okay, are these the two comparisons? Is this what – two kinds of people? And I think they're going to have a big problem. And I also thought – we were past this in television, you know, it's 2018 coming up with names like this, just, I don't know. It doesn't feel right to me. Well, the other thing they'll be revealing at their upfronts presumably is the winner of pilot week. So what is your prediction for what's going to win? Is there only going to be one? I feel like they might be selecting a couple odd or, or they alluded to that anyway, but if it's only one, I think trial by Kyle will do well because it didn't do too badly in the ratings uh, and Kyle is a very perhaps hated but also well-known figure in media already, and I think it could work in a in a half-hour time slot. The show that I'd probably like to go to air again is Taboo, which was done by Harley Breen, and basically what Harley does is he spends some time with some disenfranchised people. He spends, I think, a week away with them, gets to know them, and, and we as an audience sort of share or learn to understand that experience with them. And at the end of the show, he he basically creates a stand-up comedy show for them in front of them and their family, which appears to sort of make light of the of the hardships that they faced. I thought it was an incredibly provocative show. It was nothing like I've seen on television before. I don't know if Ten's going to take that risk as a long-term thing, but I really hope they do because I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, look, I agree. I think that Taboo should be the winner. Uh, I think it's something that free-to-air television doesn't quite have in this way. It's a really good mix of you can't ask that and also finding finding light in the dark with comedy. I suspect you're right that they'll go with Trial by Kyle, but uh, he can't even show up for his own radio show, so I think signing up to television at the moment would be... A big ask, uh, but I guess we'll hear more on this next week. And there have been some big changes at the top of WPP this week with WPP AUNZ's CEO, Mike Conahan resigning from the holding company after 12 years. So there's obviously already been heaps of changes at WPP over the past 12 months, but this resignation also came alongside an earnings downgrade and then WPP's shares were slammed. So the market is obviously expecting something or worried about something and there is certainly more to this than it seems. Abby, first off, who might replace Mike? It's an interesting question, Viv, and there certainly are quite a few things or a few people flying around in the industry as part of the speculation. I think, first of all, to look at uh, internal possible successes, I think you can look at David Fox, who is the Ogilvy Australia CEO and Chief Transformation Officer of WPP Creative Agencies. I think he has great strength in leadership and has been really pivotal in leading WPP pitches, but he has 
also been a little bit hurt by a weaker year that Ogilvy has seen, um, and that sort of includes the shrinking staff and shrinking, shrinking revenues that Ogilvy has seen this year. And then you can also look at Rose Herserg, and she is the CSO, so the Chief Strategy Officer at WPP, and she is a very, very strong thought leader within WPP, but she may face a couple of roadblocks with some senior leadership members of WPP. She would certainly be a bold choice for WPP, but there may be a little bit of resistance there for other shareholders and stakeholders. And then I think if you look externally, so outside WPP, I think uh, Andrew Little, the CEO of DDB Group Australia, is certainly a strong candidate. DDB Sydney is a huge, huge powerhouse. They're really, really strong creatively. But I think what may hold him back here is a lack of media experience, which you would need to hold a CEO role of WPP. Um, But he's certainly on the table there. Uh, Peter Horgan, Omnicom Media's CEO. Omnicom is really, really strong at the moment. Um, You just need to look at OMD to sort of see that. And I think that will really help his case as well. And then finally, Andrew Baxter, who is now a senior advisor at KPMG, but was the CEO of Publicis until September this year. He's definitely a dark horse. And despite Leo sort of taking a big hit um, last year, I think that Publicis really, really thrived under his leadership. And I think it would be wrong to admit him as a candidate. So you mentioned that uh, David Fox or Foxy, as I hear he's known, uh, is Chief Transformation Officer and WPP has certainly been going through a lot of transformation at the moment under the new CEO and indeed they've got a new global leader after Sir Martin Sorrell left and was replaced by Mark Reid. Can we anticipate more mergers and therefore less agencies? We also saw let me get this right, VML, YNR, which is YNR and VML coming together recently, which which we spoke about a few weeks ago. Is this going to be the trend regardless of the new leader? I think sort of to take it back one step there, in the last month, as you mentioned, VML, YNR merged, but we've also seen a lot of departures at WPP as well. So we've seen Cantar's CEO resign, Paul Warboys, Miles Joyce stepping down as the joint CEOs of White Grey, Phil McDonald, who was the CEO of YNR Australia departing, and also Dominic Walsh, who exited Landor as its managing director in June. But to your point, I, I definitely have heard in market that uh, that Mark Reed, now the CEO of, of WPP globally, definitely has more intentions to consolidate. But I think uh, Sir Martin Sorrell definitely liked to keep businesses running independently as long as he could and sort of milk the most of them. But I definitely think that Reed's intention and strategy is to consolidate and make things more efficient and more effective. So it would not surprise me if we saw a lot more consolidation within WPP. And Josie, they've also got their PR operations, one of which is OPR. Now, there seem to have been, speaking of buzzwords like transformation and and restructure, there seems to have been a whole lot of that happening at OPR this week. Yeah, so this week OPR appointed Jackie Potter as its chief growth officer. Um, Along with that, it also... It also hired seven new managing partners across the business. Each of the managing partners are going to be working across sections of the business, such as Melbourne, corporate, business to business, employee experience, behavioral change in life, agency and health. So lots of different 
directors across the business but it almost feels like it's becoming a little bit too top heavy and you sort of wonder is is there too many managers in the mix so for anyone playing buzzword bingo at home I'm sure that somebody just won with all of those words I think the interesting thing there as well is that I think OPR has it has really strong heritage and as we we know they they did rebrand from Ogilvy PR to OPR and dropped the Ogilvy name earlier in the year but I think they've really really struggled actually and they they do have such a strong heritage so maybe this is a move to sort of transform that business and and sort of a, a new way of bringing on new clients and also be seen to be doing something as well about that because I think that they have really really struggled. And Josie, I've been all over the place this week in terms of all over the country and (laughs) dealing with lots of non-news desk related things. And from what I've seen while you've been running the news desk, lots of Jeffrey Rush things have been happening. So those of you who don't know, I actually recall this very well. Zoe and myself were somewhat under the weather after the Walkley Awards (laughs) last year and we were sitting at Brisbane Airport and we ran into Stephen Brook who was media diary editor who has just announced that he's about to leave. And the hot gossip of the morning was that the Daily Telegraph had led with this picture of Geoffrey Rush who had been starring as King Lear, which is spelt L-E-A-R, and the Telegraph had led with King Lear, L-E-A-R, ER and an image where he was in costume and the sort of connotations there were were quite strong and and were quite obvious uh Rush is now suing the Telegraph's publisher Nationwide News which is part of News Corp and the journalist uh Jonathan Moran for for defamation so Josie what's the latest so yeah, if you've, if you're signed up to our newsletter, you'll be getting this story at the top of our inbox. Our, our reporter, Steve Jones, has been in court pretty much every day this week covering the story. Um, so Rush has launched defamation action against Nationwide News, the publisher of The Telegraph, for the story that you just referenced, Viv, and uh, I believe a subsequent story as well. So this obviously speaks to the wider Me Too movement, um, which sort of began in Australia last year with the story about Don Burke from Burke's Backyard, who was accused of harassment throughout his time on the program. Um, another big story has been the Craig McLaughlin case, which Craig has now launched defamation proceedings against the ABC and Fairfax. So uh, it kind of does speak to a wider issue here. And it's something that Tracy Spicer was speaking to this week at the Radio Alive conference, where she said it's becoming very difficult for publications to write these stories because because they just are getting sued. And a lot of the time, there might be other things that they are chasing that basically they are just too frightened to report because they just almost know that for sure they're going to get sued for defamation unless there's such strong evidence like video evidence or something that just makes it very, very clear that it did happen. Well, look, when this all started with Tracy Spicer doing joint investigations with Fairfax and the ABC, the impression that we were all very much given was basically that there was this list of offenders and about every six weeks we'd get a new revelation, a new person, a new perpetrator. Now, we had Craig McLaughlin, as you mentioned. We had Don Burke, as you mentioned. 
then it switched news outlets. Uh, and from what I understand, Tracy Spicer wasn't involved in the Jeffrey Rush investigation. But that has completely stopped now. And one of the things that Tracy Spicer was talking about at Radio Alive was that Australia's defamation laws, in her opinion, are some of the most ridiculous and some of the most unfavourable towards publications in the Western world. So at the moment, what's almost being tested in court is the truth of these allegations against Rush, which is it's quite interesting and it's quite a bizarre approach where the publication thus far hasn't really been under scrutiny. It's about did he do it? And from what I've read from Steve Jones's reports from court so far, it's all very much about the logistics of where Russia's hand was at the time and the accusations. And so it's almost becoming as well like a sexual harassment trial. And then that will feed into the defamation. Legally for a defamation case, the publisher has to prove almost absolutely that it did happen. And when you have something like this case where he's an actor, he's on stage and he, he was supposed to be brushing her body as part of the play. How do you draw the line between he inappropriately touched her or he touched her as part of the play? And it becomes a very grey legal area that is being tested in court. So it will be interesting to see where this one goes yeah Jonathan Moran was actually on stage at Radio Alive with Tracy Spicer so he is the journalist from the Telegraph who wrote the story and is part of this defamation proceedings and a lot of the panel Tracy and Jonathan included talked about how the appetite for the Me Too movement in Australia has somewhat dried up partly because they believe that we're actually a lot more conservative as a society than we're prepared to recognize also because of these defamation laws and because there is this attitude of come on get over it just get back to business so look I I have no idea of the veracity of the claims against Rush I have no idea what processes the Telegraph and Nationwide News had in place and whether or not this article is defamatory but I can say with pretty big certainty that if Rush is successful in his case we will see even less revelations because publishers just won't want to go near this. And don't forget too, Craig McLaughlin also, who was also part of Tracy Spice of the ABC and Fairfax Media's efforts, did uh, lodge a defamation case as well. So that's two of three allegations in the Me Too movement in Australia. If either of them are successful, really, I mean, I wouldn't, I'd be very reluctant to publish. These publishers in Australia have such a big issue with settling defamation cases as is, irrespective of if it's true or not, but just purely because of the cost of if they lose. There's this also this thing in there that, you know, defamation, you know, the Jeffrey Rush can say you defame me. He doesn't have to prove that you defamed him. You have to prove you didn't defame him. And that becomes really complex as well. So, regardless of what happens or whatever happens in this case will be, I agree with you, Viv, a defining part of Australian media history. And, you know, there's been so many journalists and so many editors that have called for defamation law reform. This might be the thing that could tip that over the edge. So ahead of its breakup with Network 10, MCN, the sales house, which will now do sales for the channels on Foxtel, has revealed a rebrand and a shakeup of 
its leadership team. So Zoe, I haven't seen a whole lot of this. I know that their old logo was blue and I believe (laughs) that their new logo is orange. So talk to me about that. Yes, they... I really like this rebrand for a number of different reasons and we can talk about the executive team um, as well, which was all internal promotions, unsurprisingly, from M- MCN. But basically what we were looking at before for anyone who hasn't seen the MCN logo was a blue – it kind of reminded me of a Microsoft Word sort of logo from like 2004. <laughs> I told MCN this as well, so it's nothing they haven't heard. And what you're looking at with the new one, which ironically, and I've forgotten the name of the font right now, but it's the same font Mumbrella rebranded with. So we've actually aligned in some really strange way. Ironically, Mumbrella's old logo was actually a logo made on Word by Tim Burrows. Maybe, so. they, maybe everyone had the same idea in mind. Um, the initial logo is in orange, but they're also looking, it's not limited to orange. They're looking at oranges and greens. And the C in MCN is created in a way that has a sort of figure of a person as the outline as well to reinforce their customer-centric, their new customer-centric model. So earlier this week, I had the chance to go into MCN, meet with the new CEO, Mark Frain, and some of his executives to talk through the rebrand and what they're trying to do. What I saw from that was a massive to me, it felt like everything's a lot clearer about what MCN was for. It They weren't bogged down in the tech, technology piece, which they've done in recent years. They weren't trying to overcomplicate their relationship with everyone. And you saw a much bigger focus on pushing out and making the content that they will be selling to advertisers more prevalent in, in the conversation. So among that, they had the uh, promotion of Nick Young to chief sales officer. And then you also had three more executives promoted, Susie Blindman, or I think Blindman, sorry, Susie, if you're listening, Nev Hassan and Naomi Edney as the four executive members of the team. There were a couple that unfortunately did leave the business as a result of it. But what you're definitely seeing is that they're tightening themselves and aligning themselves in a way that will make it easier for advertisers to work with them and easier for their channel partners to work with them. And I think that's definitely what they need to do, given they're now Foxtel first, as they call it. Well, Foxtel only, let's be clear. (laughs) Foxtel only, but they, they... they do work with a number of publishers and digital out of home as well, but predominantly from their biggest client is Foxtel. They're about to disengage with 10, which they announced in August. So what I'm definitely seeing is a mass cultural shift coupled with a rebrand, which is really good to see. I mean, sort of from the outside, you know, I obviously don't cover this beat, but from what I've seen, it definitely does seem a little bit like MCN are starting to find their feet since they've announced their breakup with 10, which certainly seems like it could could be a good move for them. They have certainly lost quite a few people, but a lot of them have gone to 10's new sales team under their head of sales, Rod Prosser. So they were with 10, then they moved to MCN. Now they're back at 10. So Zoe, do you get the impression that those who are left at MCN, what's the vibe? Are they? Is it feeling a bit depleted? Are they feeling like they're just going to get on with business now? How? What's your sense of it? My sense of it is that they use this rerun and restructure to reinvigorate their staff. So I think naturally with any massive change and the restructure within MCN in terms of who's going to be staying, who's being redeployed back to 10, that's still not final. So I think what they've done here is, hey, just because we've lost a massive part of our business doesn't mean we're giving up. We've got a whole new brand. We've got a whole new message. We've got different teams and different divisions. We've got this. And I think that's a very good message to send to the staff at MCN. When I when I sat down with Mark Frain this week, he talked to me a lot about, one, about the rebrand and the fact that 
to rebound, you also have to commit to completely changing the business. But the other thing I said to him was, you know, in this process of disengaging with 10, what what is the one thing you've learned? You've only been in this role for four months. There's a lot that's happened in four months. And he kind of went, oh, that's quite hard. But what he ended up saying to me was how important communication has been in this process between both 10, between the staff, for clients, uh, channel partners. He's talked about the fact that they have been so open and trying to keep them up to date as much as they can through this has really, really helped them. So if if what Mark's saying is true, I'm sure that the staff are feeling a lot better about it than they might have been a few months ago. So before we throw to Zoe and Josie's chat with Junkie Media's Tim Duggan, a quick plug for those of you who want to win $1,000. If you do, please fill out our State of the Industry Survey, which will only take 10 to 15 minutes. You can find it by Googling Mumbrella State of the Industry or by going to bit.ly slash state of industry. For now, though, over to Zoe, Josie and Tim Duggan. So joining us now on Mumbrella Cast, we have Tim Duggan, publisher and co-founder at Junkie Media. If you can hear some chatter in the background, that is because we are backstage at Mumbrella's published conference. Um, thanks for joining us, Tim. Thank you for having me. And also with me is Zoe, our senior media reporter. Hello. So, Tim, I think I want to start off with a little bit of an origin story. Mm. How did you get into youth publishing where did it all begin and when you started did you expect to get to where you are today yeah um so going back to the very beginning I was a a music journalist originally um came straight out of uni actually went into advertising agencies at the very beginning to kind of see what it was like but after a couple of years I realized that the most interesting people left advertising (laughs) no offense to anyone who's still in advertising a big part of our audience I'm afraid (laughs) yes um and then I decided I wanted to become a journalist and started um, writing and always wanted to work for Rolling Stone. I think the, the movie um, Almost Famous kind of got me mm. going on that. Um, and so I started writing for Rolling Stone at a pretty young age. Um, and then around that time, I, I started going out, going lot to events and nightclubs and festivals and became friends with um, a trio of people that started a website called In The Mix. So Neil Ackland, who's now my current business partner and two of his um, friends at the time, and started a small website called In The Mix that had grown into this community of electronic music and nightclub and dance um, lovers. And I was sitting down with Neil one day and I had done a lot of events in the um, gay and lesbian scene. And Neil and I were chatting. We're like, does something like this exist for the gay scene? And the answer was no, it didn't. So we decided to join forces and I co-founded a website called Same Same back in the mid-2000s. Um, and then from there, I kind of got brought into the whole um, the family of the company then called Sound Alliance. We launched, uh, we had Faster Louder, which was a live music website. We had In The Mix, we had Same Same. Um, and then... Was In about 2011, 2012, um, Neil and I noticed that the internet was starting to, to change. Um, 
we saw there was a real gap then for a, um, a really broad pop culture title that treated the audience like they had half a brain. Um, we originally, kind of part of our thinking was kind of pop culture with brains. And it was treating young people um, like that they wanted to engage with news and politics, information and stuff like that they really cared about. So we did a hell of a lot of research on the audience. Um, we uh, discovered the two biggest fears of young people were what we call FOMO and FONK, which is the fear of missing out and the fear of not knowing. I've never heard of FONK. Yeah, FONK. <laughs> well, fear of not knowing is, is something that I feel, but I would never – the acronym has only come through through you, Tim. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's quite an interesting one, and it's got a lot to do with media fragmentation. So the idea that you, know, you get to uni or school or work in the morning and – someone is watching Game of Thrones season two and someone else is watching Please Like Me and someone else is watching The Bachelor. And unless you know what's going on on all of those different sorts of medium, you feel like a bit of an idiot. So this fear of not knowing was something that we thought we could alleviate by launching Junkie. Um, So we launched in 2013 and it was just an immediate hit. Um, And so much so that um, we rebranded the whole company to be called Junkie Media in about 2014. We won Mumbrella's Media Brand of the Year in 2014. Um, and from there, we just it just um, continued to progress. So we launched Punky a year ago, which was kind of Junkie's cheekier younger sister. Um, and that also won the Mumbrella's Media Brand of the Year a couple of months ago. Um, and then we were acquired by O Media, um, the, the big out-of-home company, about two years ago. I think it's interesting to... Um when you talk about how you evolved, you know, there's this idea that don't try and be everything to everyone, don't go too broad, but it feels like you almost, you did that for a bit. You, you were much more focused on music and then you expanded out. Why did you decide to take that gamble and, and go bigger? Yeah, so there was, a, there was a moment where we realised the size of the music industry. So music youth publishing was a niche of a niche of a niche. Um, and we wanted to have more of an impact really in the industry. So we decided that we wanted to go broader. Um, and at that time, there was a couple of websites there. There's kind of the pedestrians of the world, the vices of the world. BuzzFeed hadn't launched in Australia. And we really saw a niche, though. I think they do what they do really well. And we just saw this niche of we want to go after young people that think, young people that kind of want to engage in news and politics. And a really fortuitous thing happened. So we launched in March 2013. And Tony Abbott um, got into power in 2013, a couple of months after we launched. And we really started to notice that young people all of a sudden got really engaged in what was going on in the world. They were rebelling against it and Junkie kind of became this place and this voice that expanded what we thought was a small audience um, into this kind of massive audience. What When we talked about Punky and we, we both spoke about Punky um, feels like forever ago, before your holiday, uh, Tim yeah. spent a nice bit of time away recently. Yes, thanks. That's oh, I can still got a tan. He's still got a tan, everyone who's listening. <laughs> um, but you, it was a really pick, quick pickup of audience when that happened. When you launched Junkie, was it as easy as it, wa- as it was in terms of audience acquisition or was it a little bit slower? Yeah, we, we, so we launched in 2013 and the internet five and a bit years ago was a real different place. So that was when you would put things up on social and they would go really far. I think Facebook, you know, turns up and turns down publishers and video. And that was a time when you you could easily exceed your audience that you had intended and it could go further than you thought. So we were surprised within six months we knew that Junkie was going to be the biggest website in the family. Um, And so much so, as, as I mentioned, we changed the whole name of the company to Junkie Media. Um, so I, I, 
we, we often talk about launching brands today in 2018 um, and Punky, I think the reason for its success is that so many brands launch that most don't hit these days. Most really don't get, uh, you know, outside of this kind of like small audience or that people have to buy traffic for it. What we really did right with Punky was that we um, identified really great talent. So we brought on board a guy called Tom Pitney, um, who at the time had bought the Vine, which was Fairfax's youth publication, um, off people who bought it off Fairfax. So it was about two or three people removed from Fairfax. And then we re- rebranded as Punky. So we had a base already, um, but we've since kind of doubled the base in the past 18 months, or 13 months. And do you think if you were starting a publication from scratch in today's market do, do you think it, it is a lot more difficult these days you know there's a lot of issues with the facebook algorithm changes what's your advice to someone who who really likes what you guys are doing wants to start a youth publishing brand but just really is a bit scared of of all the challenges that that they're up against yeah i think there's probably a good reason to be scared um and i don't know if we would launch something from scratch in this current um environment um the way that Facebook's algorithm works at the moment, it really, I feel like people are bedded down their Facebook feeds and their Twitter feeds and Instagram. So when was the last time you guys added someone new on Facebook mm. compared to maybe five years ago when you probably went on a spree? It was all about how many friends you had. You got to a thousand. It was a great day. <laughs> exactly. Now you want to get rid of all of them. <laughs> exactly. You, you, you cull it back. I think people are curating their <laughs> Same feeds. Same thing with more. publishers, yeah. 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 True, so, true. so if you're in the slipstream now and you're one of the ones that people trust, you're in a really good position and trying to break into that slipstream now is really hard. So we often talk about the way that we're going to expand now is by adding verticals onto our existing topics. So we have Music Junkie, we're looking at gaming as a really interesting space, Um, we have travel through AWOL. Um, So I think brands that exist will probably get bigger, but it's really hard for a new brand to start these days. Obviously, um, I required you, you, as you mentioned before, there was probably a lot of different people that were approaching you at that time. What did you see in O versus everyone else in market? Yeah, and there was, and we had a decision to make, and um, it was not something that we did lightly. So we we really wanted to think who was going to allow us to grow our brands, um, who was going to allow us to create an environment where the brands would really come into their own, and people that also allow Neil and myself um, and Tony Four, who's, who's our chairman, um, to be champions of content in a space. So the options that we had were we could have um, been acquired by a media company that had 50 other brands and we would be one of those brands and they would probably tell us what to do and we would just be another brand. But at O, we are the content arm of O. So O has its offices in North Sydney, we're based in Surrey Hills, and we are the kind of creative and content side of them. Um, and they've given us amazing freedom to figure out what does that mean in this world. And as you guys know and have covered really well, the out-of-home industry is going through an amazing renaissance period at the moment. And O are really p- positioning themselves as quite different because they've experimented in the space. They've taken a big risk by buying a typically millennials-focused content <laughs> company um, and it's really starting to pay off now because what we're adding to what O can do really sets them apart, apart creatively and 
content wise. And what are some of those projects that you've been working on with them and and what kind of ideas do you have for the future? Because some people might think out of home and youth publishing, how does that quite fit together? But I'm sure you've got some ideas up your sleeve. Yeah, like the the simplest way that we think about it is think about the content we create is for a mobile phone screen or for a, a desktop or a laptop. Um, and O out of home as a medium is constantly digitizing. Um, and the same principles apply of how you get someone's attention. If someone's scrolling through a feed, you've got half a second to get their attention. Exactly the same when someone's walking past a, um, a screen, you've got half a second to get their attention. Um, so we have, um, we have really created ways of getting our content, so all of the junkie media titles out onto screens. Um, we've got a couple of things in the works that I can't quite talk about right now. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> <laughs> Which are other ways that we can do that um, at scale. Um, and just the most interesting thing is thinking about the, the youth publishers. The way to win today is that you need something unique. You can't just be a youth publisher anymore. And what we have at Junkie is we are a youth publisher. We do it great on, on websites and mobiles. But now we have access to thousands of digital out-of-home screens that you can't switch off, that don't aren't reliant on an algorithm for people to see it, um, and that's a different way of, of, of getting the content to people. Like a really good example of that is O has a study network which reaches something like 1.2 million students every single week in every university campus of the, the top eight in Australia plus others, and all of our content goes up onto those screens. So we are just getting junky and punky in front of 1.2 million students, which gives us a competitive advantage in that space. And so do you think this kind of full service model of publishing is the way forward for the industry? Is it even possible to be a publisher now that just literally just does publishing and that's it? No, no. And I I think if you were, you were doing a real disservice to your audience Um, because the audience trusts publishing brands Um, and think of the great publishing brands of the world like New York Times and um, amazing magazines and brands like that. The way that they're able to extend into the real world um, is, one, not only important for the audience, but too important for revenue. Um, so we look at two sides of our business. We have um, Junkie Media, which is our publishing division, and we have Junkie Studio, which is our content agency. Um, and the work we do for brands there like Qantas and American Express um, is we create social content for them using everything that we know about how to reach an audience and how to stop them from scrolling past a piece of content. Um, and we almost think about it that every piece of content that we publish, it might be we publish somewhere between 500 to 1,000 pieces of content every month. And every single one of those is like a little experiment and figuring out, ah, oh, this headline works, or this works best for this photo, or this, is, this video format is working best. And then we take that and we go to brands and say, guys, do you want to know how to do this? We can show you. It makes so much sense to me. And sorry to any social media agencies out there, but I feel like publishers are so much better placed than a social media agency to fully understand what audiences on social are interested in. So do you think that's kind of the future of where social media agencies are going to be based more in publishing houses? Yeah, thanks, Jesse. I, I agree with <laughs> I agree with you. Um, I often think Social media agencies are very good at saying we really know social, but all they know is how to create ads for brands on social. And when we say we really know social, we mean it because we have no choice. We live and die by the content that we create. And if we're not good at that, then we're not going to have a business. Speaking of social, uh, Facebook, uh, we had Facebook at Umbrella Publish. We had Andrew Hunter, the news partnerships lead for Australia and New Zealand on stage. And um, at the time I asked him, 
do you how do you want the relationship between Facebook and publishers to be? Do you want them to be over reliant on you? Do you want them to be reliant on you at all? And he actually said, we don't want them to be reliant on us for each. We want them to use us as a tool. What's your view on that? Because I know, especially in Punky's case, a lot of your brand awareness, and I think this is a great example of how you can use Facebook in a way, comes from from Facebook and and people's audience interactions um, with Punky through Facebook. Yeah, um, I, I actually agree with what Andrew says. I, I think publishers need to use Facebook as much as Facebook is using publishers. So Facebook needs the content on there from publishers like us, but we also need the audience that they have access to. Um, and I think the days of um, thinking of Facebook as a friend or a foe are over. Um, Facebook is a symbiotic part of what, what we create. And, and for us and our websites, something like 50 to 60% of our traffic comes through social. Um, so that's hugely important to us, but we're also not relying on it. The fact that 50% of our traffic also comes through other places like through Google and through referral traffic and through um, direct traffic of people typing in junkie.com or punky.com.au. Um, so I think Facebook is Facebook is constantly trying to talk down how important it is for publishers because it's not in their interest to say that they're intertwined. But the fact that of our audience, 82% of our audience gets more of their news from social media and they do from newspapers, radio or TV, just says that Facebook is an important tool. And I think the more that we work with people like Andrew and his um, great team at Facebook, um, the better it is for all of us. But would you argue then that for the publishers, say, that are over-reliant or um, that sort of not locally but internationally have died as a result of the Facebook algorithm changes early this year, that they were maybe lacking something like a, a strong brand presence, what you were talking about, a differentiating point. Is it – it's all well and good to work and utilise these social media platforms as long as you have a strong brand and a reason for existence. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about Unilad as a great example. Yeah. So Unilad literally came from nowhere over a couple of years and they were everywhere – they rode that Facebook wave up there just the same way as Upworthy rode it a couple of years ago and lots of other sites have kind of ridden that wave and they didn't diversify enough off Facebook um, and now that wave is crashing and their business is you know, having a lot of troubles because of it. So I think if you just build yourself solely on Facebook, you're going to be in a lot of trouble um, and if you don't diversify income streams and diversify as a brand and try and be a lot bigger... Um, that's something that we really try and do on Junkie is how can we be bigger than just a brand that someone sees on Facebook? How can we get our um, writers and journalists out there into the media? How can we do brand campaigns? How can we do events? Um, and that's really important. I just think that companies like Unilad just didn't do that enough um, and that was in the effect of that. Okay, I think that's probably all we've got time for, but thank you for joining us on the Melbourne Broadcast today, Tim. Thank you very much for the questions. And just before we go, a bit more housekeeping. Thank you for continuing to support the Mumbrella cast since we brought it back. If you haven't had the chance yet or we haven't asked you enough times, we'd love it if you could rate it or even write a review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. That will help other people find it. For now, though, thanks, everyone. Thanks. thanks. thanks.